Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. She is Stephanie McNeil. It's Monday, and you are watching AM to DM. You have so much energy. That was such an intro. I love it. I like, I like to have a lot of energy. You know who doesn't have a lot of energy right now? Saeed Jones is out sick. Yes. It is going around, it feels like. Bringing in, bring in the B team. <laughs> Bringing in the A team. <laughs> are, you, uh, are you feeling okay? I am not sick. I feel great. I, I feel like I might have a little bit of a day two hangover and then I'm really thirsty. But other than that, <laughs> I'm all good. You're like, I just got to stay hydrated. Yeah. I feel middle of the road, if I'm being a little honest. I do feel like a lot of, uh, a lot of people right now, tis the season. I think for everyone mm. to get the flu a little bit. So I'm you trying guys to be gotta careful. take your immune supplements. That is the key to staying healthy. That is my I won't say which one because I don't wanna do some spawn con. <laughs> immune supplements are my jam. Okay, well, all eyes last night were on can you guess it? Uh, what were they what were they on? An egg. <laughs> Atlantic staff writer Taylor Lorenz tweeted, A kid from London launched this account to try to get this picture of an egg to become the most liked photo on Instagram, and it's on its way there. Also has nearly one million followers on the account now. Of course, oh. that tweet is outdated at this point. That was last night. It has like three million followers now because the egg did it. It's currently at 29 million likes and rising. It is the most liked photo on Instagram. A lot of people very excited about this egg. I liked it. I'm not going to lie. I heard about this story this morning, and I went over there and I liked it. Did you Did you like the egg? I did not like the egg. I, I, I don't care about the egg at all. You know, okay, because this, <laughs> no, this is interesting because this is what you do, right? You, yes. you, you cover social media news stories. I do. Why did the egg not catch your attention? Why is this not for you? I just, I thought in 2019, you know, we were a little past internet stunts. <laughs> and I just think like, aren't we a little more evolved? Do we really need to be just like liking random eggs? I don't know. It just seemed like, I don't know, been there, done that? I'm you were, you, over you it. were hoping 2019 was going to be like a little more mature. Yeah, like, I don't know. Let's pay attention to something that matters. And I'm out here being like, no, I was really rooting for the egg. I got really excited for the egg. It did dethrone Kylie Jenner, right? Yes. Had a photo that had 18.2 million. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the reaction video that Kylie Jenner did in response. And you liked this part of it. Yeah, this is pretty funny. I thought Kylie had a funny Instagram. She was just, re I think she was reposting a meme, which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, she had the most liked Instagram. It was the photo that she put up announcing Stormy's name back mm -hmm. in February. Um, and I don't know. I mean, now the, as I tweeted earlier this morning, now the egg is going to have egg merch. I'm sure it'll have spawn con any day now. It's like, do we, okay, great. Now we have a new egg influencer. Is that really what we need in the world? I will say I'm with you on that. I was kind of hoping the egg was going to be pure and that would be it, but it does look like we'll probably be getting egg t-shirts in the not too distant future. Listen, our own producer, Caroline Moss had a theory though, putting $100 on the egg Instagram being a Chloe and Kim versus Kylie prank on the season premiere of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Think about it. Now, do you like you like that, right? Would that be fun? That would be hilarious. Okay. That, I, that's I would, a news story. You would cover that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I it could be like eggs egg viral marketing, right? And you it would could be, be anything. That. You would be into that. All right. No, I'm not really into viral marketing. But okay, I really have a real question here. Is the egg going to milkshake chicken? Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were gonna say milkshake chicken. All right, we're not gonna talk about the egg milkshake ducking. It's time to take it to the timeline. What's your, I wanted to keep it pure this morning. What's right. your most liked photo on Instagram? Share it with us using the hashtag am to dm I have no idea what my most liked picture is. Do you? I think that speaks about what a wonderful human being you are. Oh. I am super vain and I definitely do know. Okay, one thing that I will wanna say, I don't wanna drag, I don't wanna, uh, cluck on here. You don't want to extend <laughs> yeah. the conversation. But I do, something I've complained about in the past to in my personal life is I get so many more likes of pictures of me and my husband than anything else. I could post a photo of me getting the Nobel Peace Prize mm -hmm. and then put up a selfie the next day of me and him and it'd be like two to one. Wow. Isn't that kind of sexist? I don't know. It's like, oh, congratulations. Okay, they're telling me we have to need to move on. <laughs> but let me know if you, anyone else sees that because I think it's weird. I don't have a husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you get more with your fiance? Yeah, but she's very beautiful. 
That's true. That's true. She is very beautiful. Okay. We got to move on. Here is a tweet from the California Teachers Association. If LA teachers walk off the job January 14th, as widely expected, it will be a meta strike with extremely high stakes, not only for teachers, students, and parents in LA, but for public education across the U.S. This morning, teachers will strike in the country's second largest school district. Joining us now is Huffington Post education reporter Rebecca Klein. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So listen, this is a massive story. It's happening out on the West Coast. How did we get here and, and what do the teachers want? So we got here after almost 21 months of failed negotiations between the union and the district. So this is a conflict that they've been anticipating for some time. Um, and yes, while they want higher salary, they say what they really want are commitments for smaller class sizes. They want more resources. They want a commitment to have more school nurses. Some elementary schools only have a school nurse for one day a week. And they just want greater support. They also are really unhappy with how heavily standardized testing has been pushed upon them in the public schools. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, they feel like it's taking away students' uh, desire to learn. They feel like it's disrupting the classroom experience. And they feel like it's making uh, a much more difficult environment for a really high needs district. Um, so they want some commitments from the district that there's gonna be less emphasis on that. I wanna read a tweet from you, Rebecca. You wrote, I wrote about how the LA teacher strike has everything to do with tensions within the Democratic Party over education policy. And this is really interesting because obviously this is a local issue, but you also said it had implications for national politics. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, you know we're coming off the heels of this red state revolt that happened in the spring and summer where teachers and states across the country were walking out and protesting. This is the first time that we're seeing it in such a deeply blue place like California. Everyone involved in this fight is a Democrat, but what it really represents are larger tensions within the party about what the future of public education should look like. Um, and because it's such a huge district and it's such a high stakes issue, as we look to, to 2020, I think the outcome of the strike could have real national implications about how Democratic politicians frame this issue. How they frame the education issue, which is going to be such a big issue in 2020. Can you just speak a little bit more, Rebecca? You said that those tensions. What are those tensions within the party? What is that fight? Sure. So you have a, a faction of Democrats who are very pro-charter school. They're very pro uh, public education reform. Um, Barack Obama was pro-charter school. His two secretaries of education were pro-charter school. And then you have an emerging faction, uh, you know, uh, like the unions and, and many other groups that really feel like private school, not private school, public school choice has become a partisan issue. And you, you've seen that happen more with Betsy DeVos, that people really associate charter schools and school choice with the Trump administration and, and Democrats. Many Democrats seem to want to move away from that. All right, back to, to LA. I just want to ask, have we heard anything from the district? And is there any, do you have any idea how long this strike might last? Well, there will be no negotiations today. So it's definitely going to be at least today um, and negoti negotiations are going to resume again tomorrow. Um, but I would anticipate it, it takes a little bit longer than that. Well, we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on everything happening today. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more coverage of this. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. All right. A tweet from political unit associate producer at CBS News, Ben Mitchell. It's official. The CBS News 2020 election team has assembled. And that tweet did not get the response he wanted. No. It was ratioed. Yeah, it was ratioed very hard. I think it had about 2,500 responses mm. and about 100 retweets, which is not mm. exactly the ratio that I'm sure he wanted. Well, here's one response of many from Kerry Washington. Dear CBS News, I am encouraged by the diversity you did include, but when it comes time to discuss the inevitable role that race and racism will play in the election, 
Who will you turn to for perspective with nuanced and personal understanding of the African-American experience? Put a little more pointedly, Philadelphia Magazine writer-at-large Ernest Owens tweeted, and this is why the news failed us in 2016. CBS News doesn't have one single black journalist on their election team. A black woman is close to declaring her presidential bid this month after all the diversity dialogue, and here we are. It's obvious they don't care. Well, Ernest joins us now. Hey, Ernest. Good morning. Good morning. I'm happy to be on. This is exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Happy Monday. So when you first saw this tweet, did you, what was your first reaction to it? The first thing I saw was I said, I don't see any black skin. I don't see any melanin. What's going on here? Um, 2020 presidential election. I mean, didn't we just have a whole conversation um, with nationally about the lack of um, black reporters covering the 2020 election? Um, the New York Times had did a story about how they could have done a better job. I thought this was going to echo across all newsrooms in the country, and it seems like it didn't. And so my first reaction was, you know, presidential campaign, you know, so white and feeling like once again, we're being ignored out of the larger conversation. Black journalists such as myself who cover politics and cover race in those intersections on a daily basis, you know, where was the opportunity for us to be a part? And I know that CB has tons of black reporters that could have also been a part of that conversation. So it was very disheartening. Okay, so I do want to ask this because you're, you're right. It's almost like we had two years from the last election. Lord knows we had longer history than that to kind of right these wrongs. And it's still happening now in 2019. Why do you think that is? You know, personally, I think that, you know, there is still a conversation that needs to be had about leadership um, in newsrooms. It's not just enough to have um, black reporters, but also black editors and people that are, you know, making decisions at the top. And I think there's always this conversation around where to place black in newsrooms. You know, there's a lot of us doing entertainment and arts and sports, but when it comes to serious issues around politics and community affairs, there tends to be this 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 confusion. And I think really when you look at CBS's um, leadership at the top, the people who are making the decisions, they're not as diverse. And, and that will also play into their, you know, innate bias to make decisions that also exclude black people. When I saw this tweet and we were talking about it this morning, obviously we have an issue with CBS, but also I have to wonder if every newsroom in America was forced to tweet out their politics team or their breaking news team, how different would it look? Do you think this is a problem among many other media organizations or because people I think are just focusing on CBS, but it's a wider issue? Well, absolutely. I think the reason why people are focused on CBS is because they are a major media company and they do set the tone and the precursor for other newsrooms across the country. Look, if CBS is fine, it's okay, despite the number of diversity programs and, and, and their ability to up at conventions like the National Association of Black Journalists, for example. If they're showing up in these places talking of diversity and still thinking that this is, is plausible, then this sets a tone in other newsrooms um, across the country that they might be able to slide by and exclude black people from the political conversation. Uh, personally, I think it was really important that people did single out CBS and focus on them so that this could be an example of what not to do for The New York Times, for NBC, for ABC, and for all the other publications that's trying to plan their presidential campaign newsroom teams. Yeah, and, and let's talk about that. What are some of the ways in which other newsrooms can kind of avoid a moment like this can help change the structural racism that led to, to this team's assembly? I mean, I think it's simple. I think it's looking at the talent across the board. We do exist. There, are, um, my good friend and colleague um, who is in the business, Erin Haynes Wack, had put a tweet out. Um, you know, she is a race reporter at the Associated Press, and she created a thread that went viral that asked for many of us to shout out journalists that are black that are covering reporters specifically, not columnists that are covering politics and race. And that thread has been shared by so many people in the industry just shouting out all of these journalists so that we can, you know, debunk, uh, debunk the myth that we don't exist in large numbers and that we are not able or capable to do this work. So I think it just really takes each newsroom to look carefully at individuals in their in their in their in their newsrooms that are covering race, 
that are covering issues that are going to be pivotal. I mean, there's so many different ways to slice this this turkey of this election, and it doesn't necessarily have to be another, you know, you know, another, you know, you know, white reporter that that is zoomed in on the White House. It could be someone who's covering issues that's are, that is impacting everyday Americans in a way that addresses issues that are implicated by the White House. So there's different ways to be imaginative and creative, but we cannot um, ignore the role that that Black America has played in this conversation from the beginning. Absolutely. Ernest, thank you so much for joining us this morning on AM to DM. Thank you. And we were seeing real eye to eye on things because before we leave, I wanted to highlight that tweet that he just mentioned himself. It's from AP National writer Aaron Wack. Here's an exercise. Let's start a thread here of the black journalists covering race and or politics whose work you respect and read. I'm talking reporters, not columnists, though I love you all. Go. And we're going to tweet that thread out right now. You should definitely take a look. And I just want to give a shout out to one of my favorite political reporters ever who writes the most amazing stuff, our own Darren Sands. Who cover? He was covering everything that you heard about in November. He was covering it last November. So you guys, if you don't follow him, you should get on it because he has the best stuff. Yeah, good shout-out. Thank you. <laughs> I, I love him. I love you, Darren. You're the best. Well, we've got a great show for you today. Isaac will be sitting down with Haley Joel Osment. So exciting. But up next is Fire Tweets. you guys what's the most liked photo you have on your Instagram page and this has actually been a great uh, question for us to ask you guys because we're getting such great photos including one from Jess who wrote I can't be mad it's my daughter's fifth birthday picture which always comes on Valentine's Day and which she always celebrates by wearing heart themed everything kids pics always get more likes mm. She is so incredibly cute. I clicked through. Thank you for sharing. That's so sweet. I didn't realize this was going to be such a like cool little thing. It's a nice way to start the morning. I know, Monday right? morning, we're just looking at really cute photos of our audience. It's really nice. I know. Love it. Keep sending them. All right, you ready? Let's do it. This is from Stelman, who said, My apartment's pest control guy always refers to Richie, my cat, as a fellow industry professional. <laughs> yeah, so Buffy does is not a fellow industry professional. We thought we had a mouse one time and we went over and she was like <laughs> sleeping. Your cat does not does not hunt rodents or insects or anything. No, we we have had various issues and she has never shown any ounce of interest. She's a Persian. She's she's about she's not a she's not a worker. She's a, she, <laughs> she's, a, she's, an elite. she's elegant. She's part of the 1%. Okay, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Natalie tweeted, "My imposter syndrome doesn't scream I'm a fraud all the time." Sometimes it whispers, the scam is working. Oh, yeah. Yes, that is real, right? You feel that a little bit? I mean, the scam is working. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, no, we deserve this. Okay. <laughs> Alexa, I can just look at a girl and tell you if she wore Converse with her homecoming dress. That's really Ooh, funny. Ooh, that's I, I feel called out even though I didn't wear a Oh, you don't wear a homecoming dress? dress? Yeah, I feel called out by that, too. I feel like this is coming from the whole thing where people are sharing photos from, like, 2008 and 2009 on social media. Mm, have you seen that? I have. It's, like, 2009 versus 2019, and there's, like, a lot of, like, early 2000s. Did you do it? Did you share one? Uh, no, I haven't. I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I look that different. Maybe. I'll have to go back and look. All right, all right. Anil tweeted, as a father in a diverse city, I get the privilege of seeing kids of all walks of life, every race and gender and class, and one thing unites all these kids. They're all dipshits who won't zip up their coats when it's cold as hell. And that's real. I feel called out by that tweet too, because I am like that. You're not a coat zipper? I don't zip up the coat. Are, are you too cool to carry an umbrella too? Don't read me for filth. <laughs> I'm live on air, Stephanie. All right, you want to do the tweet of the day? Yeah, let's do it. Tweet of the day comes from our very own Hayes Brown. Congrats, Hayes. We'll give you a cake later. <laughs> Angel, okay, we've got death, childbirth, and strife. Any other punishments for the humans? God, I call it the empty carbohydrate. They eat it and it will do nothing to fuel their body. Angel, and it will taste terrible? God, it will be the center of their fucking world. <laughs> I also love that he's made, I mean, I know this is biblically accurate, but that childbirth was like on par with death as a punishment for humans. 
<laughs> I like that it's biblical. I just like that every single tweet this morning, I felt like it was a direct attack. I feel maybe I'm just being sensitive this well, morning. Well, maybe if you carry an umbrella, people will attack you. <laughs> Fair enough. Coming up, I sit down with Oscar-nominated actor Haley Joel Osmond. But up next, we are going live from the district because a lot happened this weekend. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Hey, Paul. Hey, good morning. Good morning, man. I wanted to ask, how'd you fare during the snowstorm that hit D.C. yesterday? Oh, as you know, D.C. only adopted the snow. I was born into it. So I've been having a wonderful time. I've been out there frolicking through the streets of, of uh, the nation's capital. It's been lovely. Yeah, Paul's <laughs> Canadian. He's got this. He's a, he's a snow bunny. <laughs> I need to see a video of you frolicking through the snow. I'm a great frolicker. I just, I'm just so happy. And the Patriots won yesterday. It's just, you know, things are going fine despite the fact that our country's in crisis. You do have a, a, a the country is burning, but my life is okay glow about you this morning, Paul. You really do. You really do. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into yeah, that. Yeah. Let's get into that trash fire. Here's a start with a tweet from CNN. Transcripts show the FBI discussed whether Trump followed Russia's directions, as well as whether he acted completely within his authority. Those transcripts come from details revealed in a New York Times article this weekend about an FBI inquiry into Trump after Comey's firing. And then the Washington Post followed with another story that Trump had concealed, concealed details of his meetings with Putin from his own administration. Paul, that is a lot. For those of us who are enjoying brunch this weekend, though, what did we learn from these reports? Yeah, so uh, the first one, uh, perhaps maybe the more shocking one, that FBI officials in the days after James Comey was fired as FBI director were so concerned that they opened an investigation line into whether or not Trump was working in concert or at the direction of the Russian government. Now, of course, we have to say uh, this was... A year and a half ago now, uh, we don't know if they came up with any actual evidence. Nothing has come out of that thus far. So this isn't to say that they actually proved this, but that they con were concerned enough that they opened an investigation. And then also this very strange story about how Trump is going to uh, pretty extreme lengths to keep anyone in his own administration from knowing what he was talking about with Vladimir Putin on the five or so times that they've met in person. That is just very unusual. Uh, normally you would have some sort of record. It would be classified, of course. But at least the people within the administration would know what transpired. And he has gone to lengths to make sure they had no idea. How is he doing this? How is he going to be, what lengths is he going to to conceal? Because aren't his administration, you assume they're around him all the time. Wouldn't they know? So he's keeping people out of the room during the meetings, uh, even when there has been a translator who is there translating and taking notes. He's uh, confiscated the notes of the translator uh, so that they couldn't be shared and told the translator not to, to tell anything about what transpired in the room. And so at a certain point, if you're a staffer, uh, what can you do in that situation? I guess, yeah, you, I mean, you don't just snatch him up. I want to just ask the very basic question, Paul, which is how unusual is this? I mean, have we had presidents that have acted like this in the past? Well, we know Trump has a history of this. I mean, there was a story that came out a few months into his presidency where he, all of his official memos and stuff, he'd be ripping them up and throwing them in the garbage. But, of course, those are presidential records, so you would have people going through his garbage bins and re-taping together all the letters. This is not a guy who likes to leave a paper trail. Uh, I mean, obviously it's strange uh, given that this is another world leader, but the elephant in the room is pretty clearly that we know the Russian government interfered in the American election to try to get Donald Trump elected president, and now they're having these meetings where Donald Trump doesn't want anyone to know what was being said. The optics of that are obviously, I mean, mind-boggling. Uh, so that, that's what makes this truly, truly unusual. Have these stories had a huge impact? I feel like a, there's been so many stories about the Russia-Trump connection that come out and we hear all these very scandalous details and then people just kind of move on to the next thing. So do we think that House Democrats will try to seize on these for more investigations or are these kind of already lost in the shuffle? 
No, that's a good point. I mean, how does anyone really know what to think? We get all of these stories about uh, shady-seeming involvement between the Trump administration or relationships between the Trump administration and Russian intermediaries. But none of us really know, and we're not really going to know until the Mueller report comes out. Between then, now and then, I mean, what can we do other than theorize? So, yeah, there, I, I understand the, the frustration, sort of the fatigue that people would have with this Trump-Russia story. I feel it sometimes myself where I'll see these stories and think, well, what do we do with this? And really, there's not much until the Mueller report is filed. Now, that's not necessarily true if you are, say, a Democratic congressman who is a chairman of one of the several committees who are now vowing to open investigations into the Trump administration. So they do have some powers, and they are using these reports uh, as grounds to launch investigations. They've already announced that there are going to be several investigations into Trump's personal dealings and the dealings with the administration, and they are going to investigate any link between the Trump administration and Russia. Well, here's a tweet from Sarah Mims. This is now the longest government shutdown in U.S. history, and there's no end in sight. Yeah, so we hit that milestone over the weekend. We're now in day 24. When's it going to stop, Paul? Tell us. Give us the answer. <laughs> I, I wish I had any remotely positive spin I could put on this. I don't. Uh, the sides are as dug in as ever. There was no progress over the weekend. If anything, I would say we're farther apart now than maybe at the end of the week. Uh, there, there seemed to be at least some talk of trying to finish the, uh, uh, conclude the shutdown before it became the longest ever. Obviously, that didn't happen. And now, I, I, I just don't see any immediate impetus for either side to crack. Democrats feel good because they've got polling on their side saying that most people blame Republicans. Donald Trump doesn't really care about polling. He wants his wall, and he staked his reputation on this. We've already heard reports that he's saying from the meetings with uh, Chuck, Pelosi and, uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi that uh, I can't back down because, or else I'd look like a fool. So they've both kind of boxed themselves into corners here. And yeah, in the meantime, it's 800,000 people continue to go without payment uh, for their jobs every day. And let's talk about that because we just talked about the politicians for a good long while. But how does this continued shutdown continue to affect federal workers? Yeah, and actually, it's worth noting that the last long shutdown in 1995-1996 during the Clinton years, which was 21 days, uh, was only 280,000 people. This is 800,000. So not only is this the longest shutdown in history, it is uh, about three times larger than the next longest one. I mean, this is huge. And so, you know, I've been talking to people uh, who are, are uh, with the unions that are representing these workers, and the stories are heartbreaking. You, you've seen reports of people having to ration insulin because they can't afford to buy more. I've heard stories of people who are just sleeping in their cars, basically, because that's the only way they're going to be able to go to and from work, because they, they just don't have money to commute, essentially. Uh, there have been people, I mean, uh, we had a story over the weekend where prison guards are freaking out because prisons are essentially paying for the food, the provisions, with IOUs, and they're terrified that if vendors stop providing food because they're not getting paid, uh, that, I mean, you can imagine what kind of chaos that would cause in a prison situation if people aren't getting fed. So it's a, a huge financial hardship. It's a huge amount of stress. Uh, I, 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 when you look at, like, how do people get short-term money, you go to payday lenders, you put it on the credit card. I mean, these are things that could have uh, could financially derail people for years. It's a really sad situation. I, on Friday, I was thinking about the government shutdown, and I just typed shutdown stories or government employee into GoFundMe, and there were hundreds of GoFundMe. Oh, really? So if, yeah, I think, it's, oh, wow. I think we're going to actually pursue it as a story later this week. But I would encourage anyone who doesn't really understand the human impact to just do that. It's a simple search and it's really heartbreaking. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us and talking about all this stuff. Okay, thanks. Up next, I speak with Gabby Dunn, author of Bad With Money. Stay I'm too. really excited. Yeah. I'm excited to see Gabby. Yeah. It's been a minute. Ryan tweeted, today I sat down and devoured Gabby Dunn's newest book, Bad With Money, in one sitting. 
such a refreshingly modern and amazingly queer take on finances that actually made me want to give a damn about where my money is and isn't going. Well, that's certainly a ringing endorsement. And Gabby Dunn, author of Bad With Money, joins me now. Hey, Gabby. Hi. Oh, my God. I didn't even see that tweet. What a lovely surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's a great tweet. It really sums up, I think, a lot how a lot of people are feeling about the book. So the book grew out of your popular podcast, which is also called Bad With Money. Mm -hmm. So when did you start discussing money? Uh, around 2016, I wrote an article uh, which was called Get Rich or Die Vlogging because I had done some U I had done YouTube stuff and um, we weren't making really any money from it, but we were getting popular. And there was this huge disparity between how visible we were and how financially stable we were. And a lot of the fans didn't really understand that. And so I was like crying about money all the time. And people would always be like, it's so brave that you talk about being bisexual. It's so brave that you talk about like sex positivity. And I was like, you know, it would be really brave if I talked about money. But to myself, I thought that. And so then I had the chance to do a podcast and they were like, what do you want to do it about? And I was like, honestly, I want to poke this wound uh, because I think if, if, if you're crying about something in isolation, there's probably somebody else crying about that. That's so I was like, let's so talk about it. Let's talk about it. I was so frustrated that nobody talked about it. Yeah, you actually said in the book that you go around and people are more willing to talk about their favorite sex position mm -hmm. than how much money is in your checking account or how much money do you have in savings. Right. Which I thought was so incredibly interesting. And well, sex is cool. Sex it's so is cool. cool. Yeah. And money is uncool. <laughs> so, what do you think that says about how we view personal finance in this country? Uh, we think of it as taboo or tacky and I, to talk about, and I also think that we view it as a like personal, moral, intellectual failing. So instead of looking at it as like a systemic problem, we go, oh my God, I'm a bad person. And that's so not true. But nobody knows how anyone else is making money, so we judge ourselves based on our friends or we judge ourselves based on like people we see on Instagram or whatever. And like we don't know the whole story because you don't sit down and ask your friend like, hey, uh, you, I know you have a day job, but are you doing something else? Or like I had no idea which friends had parents, you know, their parents were giving them money. So I would compare myself to people that like, I shouldn't be comparing myself to. And we take it on as this like very isolating thing and we just add shame and stigma and anxiety and whatever to a thing that is just a, gonna be a part of life and is a part of life. Yeah, that's so true. You definitely, I, I, I felt so, I felt that so hard when I was reading that your part of your book because it is something that I think people internalize like if I don't handle money well, I'm a bad person. Yes. And you also talk a lot about how money and finance is different across race, across gender, mm -hmm. across sexuality, which I think is something that a lot of personal finance books don't get into. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the advice, you know, that whole save X amount when you, until you're 30 or whatever, uh, doesn't take into account a lot of the systemic issues. So in the book, it's like, you know, I can give you advice about credit cards, but I can't do that without going into how, like, historically, you know, women were not allowed to have credit cards without their husband's signature until, like, the 70s. Uh, redlining caused a lot of black people to have problems with, like, getting loans and mortgages. Uh, so, like, you know, I'm not going to talk about retirement without talking about statistically how retirement isn't marketed to the LGBTQ community. So, like, there are these systemic things that I always felt were missing from personal finance books where I was like, you can't give this broad general advice to people because it doesn't apply. Disabled people aren't allowed to save more than $2,000 a month, otherwise their benefits are cut. So how do you tell a person, you know, to save X amount by 30 when they like legally can't? Another, yeah, another thing that you talk about a lot, I was trying to describe your book this morning and I said it's almost like part memoir about money, part, uh, part personal finance tips because you go into a lot about how how you were raised and the relationship that you have with your parents and their relationship with money mm -hmm. impacts how you experience money and mm -hmm. how you think about money, which obviously is different for so many people. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's called a money script. So um, this guy, Dr. Brad Klontz, was a guest on my podcast, and he talked about how you can you get basically all of your thinking about money from you know whoever raised you. So if you saw your parents spending wildly, uh, you I mean it would affect people differently. So you might then think that's okay, or you might go, oh my god, I have to be the most frugal person on the planet. So you have all these like ideas that are so emotional and so like tangled in the roots of how you grew up. So whatever that is for you, I talk about in the book, just sit down, think about it, and then realize what your thoughts are about it and if they're even true. 
And if it's even, and then you can start to untangle like what you believe, whether that's true or it's a myth or um, if it's healthy or, you know, there's some, there's such a thing as like too frugal if you just work all work and no play kind of thing. Um, but they're also, it's like, you know, my parents were just like, it's fine, it's fine. And it's not fine. Um, they talk about in the book that they, they took out like a $20,000 loan for, for my bat mitzvah which is nuts. You're 13 years old. You don't need, that's no. But I, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but at this, but now I'm like, oh my God, their whole focus was on just living in the moment, but now they're paying for it. So that made me very anxious. Yeah, I definitely don't have the problem of being too frugal. That's what I like that. Well, Gabby, thank you so much for joining me. And everyone should go pick up your book. It's so great. Don't go away. Up next, Isaac is sitting down with Haley Joel Osment. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Oscar-nominated actor Haley Joel Osment, one of the stars of Future Man and extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, and a whole bunch of other stuff, because you are busy this year, man. It's been a busy year. Yeah, very grateful for that. You yeah. have been working. You've been putting it in. It's Thank incredible. You. Yeah. But let's start with Future Man, yes. which is a wild show. It really is, yeah. It's it's a true, uh, a complex sci-fi series that also has a lot of very silly humor, so we like that mixture. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like very highbrow science fiction. It is, yeah. With a lot of like really dirty jokes, basically. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so can you just, just to kind of give, if, if somebody hasn't been watching Future Man, your character brings about the apocalypse by curing all diseases. Can you talk right. a little bit about that? In season one, Josh Hutcherson is a loser janitor by day and a top-ranked uh, video gamer by night who's contacted by people from the future who tell him he has to stop um, Keith David from curing herpes because it starts a chain reaction that destroys the entire world. They uh, commit a, a terrorist act in the end of season one that kills Keith David and uh, they think stops the apocalypse from happening. But uh, I'm a scientist who carries on his research, cures humanity of all disease, and then starts World War III anyway. And then just starts, yeah. let's, I'm sorry, you just <laughs> nailed that. Do you rehearse that in the shower? Oh, you, you know, I'll be mirror? running for governor in a couple of years, so I'm just kind of practicing the, uh, yeah, on this one issue, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, but you also play in a tech billionaire in Silicon Valley. That's right, and a funny thing about that was that particularly in this city when that show came out people were like oh let's get a picture of us like shaking hands and I was like he was a bad guy like dude <laughs> it's like he really was it's like it's like having a picture of yourself shaking hands with Trump like it's not a great thing do, yeah. you, do you feel like you have an insight into like the tech billionaire oh, not mindset? at all and on that series they had a lot of really I mean everybody on that show is really smart actors writers everything but they had advisors who had worked in Silicon Valley who were making sure that we did all of the you know, all of our lingo is correct mm -hmm. and everything, and it's just, I'm, I'm not built for that. You know, I'm, I'm glad there's an entertainment industry. You're not trying to be a tech billionaire <laughs> no, no, no. anytime. I can't code, yeah. <laughs> I can't code. Uh, let's talk a little bit, though, also about Zach, Zach Efron playing yeah. Ted Bundy. That's right. Why do you think, one, one, does he pull it off? He absolutely does, uh, and the biggest obstacle to overcome for him is Everybody always said, like, oh, Ted Bundy, like, he was so attractive and all this stuff. And Ted Bundy looked like a serial killer. Zac Efron is actually attractive, so they had to stick some, some fake teeth in his mouth and, like, kind of uh, change him up a little bit, give him the turtlenecks and the weird 70s hairstyle so that he kind of looked like Ted Bundy. But he's fantastic. Uh, it was directed by Joe Berlinger, who's done some of the greatest documentaries of, of, of the past couple decades. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. We're going to be debuting it at Sundance on the 30th anniversary of his execution to the day. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Why yeah. do you think we, like, audiences are drawn to such dark stories? I don't know. I mean, it, it is sort of everyone across all ages and genders and everything. Like, everyone seems to have had... Uh, that period where they're just sort of going through the Wikipedia articles and everything. I think Serial sort of, uh, uh, that, that podcast Serial kind of uh, propelled people into it and sort of made it uh, popular in recent years. But like the Errol Morris documentary, uh, The Thin Blue Line, and some of the things that Joe Berlinger did in the 90s about the, uh, uh, the Memphis Three mm -hmm. and everything, I think had something to do with that being like a big cultural uh, moment. And all of a sudden something we're all focused on. Um, speaking of dark stories though, of course, I gotta bring up The Sixth Sense. That's right, it's yeah. It's been 20 years. 20 years, yeah. What was it like, ha I mean, you got nominated for an Oscar. What was it like having such an incredible role so early in your life? 
It, uh, it was just one of the most fun experiences I've had on a film set. And it's funny because it's a pretty dark story <laughs> and a movie that I think disturbed a lot of people. But all my memories of it are, are just of, of having a lot of fun in Philadelphia working with Knight and Bruce and everybody. So, <laughs> And it's a big year for Knight, too, because uh, I'm, I'm going to hopefully see Glass as soon as I get back to Los Angeles. Right. So, so yeah. and, and Bruce is in that as well. I was wondering, are right. you still in touch with those guys? Do you guys? They, yeah, they're very kind guys. Uh, I saw Knight uh, recently at a charity thing, and he's just, uh, he's exactly as I remember him when he was 28 making The Sixth Sense, bouncing a basketball on his director's chair. Just like a very mellow, great guy. Yeah, That's incredible. I love the idea that you have these like just fond, warm memories <laughs> is, of yeah. what for me was like <laughs> one of the scariest films I saw as a young one person. One thing that I was thinking of is uh, going on to set on a Monday, and I was 10 so I didn't go to the parties on the weekend, but uh, Bruce had care. DJed a cast party and Knight was like, when you played that one track, like that was so great. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's my memory of the sixth sense as Bruce DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, now I want photos of Bruce DJ. That's yeah. incredible. Um, how often do people come up to you though and say, I the see line? the yeah. line. I Let's mean, call it the line. One of the cool things for me is that on the AFI quotes list, I was right after uh, the Howard Beale, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore mm-hmm. line. That's one of my favorite movies. So to be to be uh, in that world is pretty crazy. But it mostly happens now in like unexpected ways. Like I saw Yasiel Puig say it on the big screen at a Dodger game last year. And you're like, <laughs> oh, like, wow. Like, <laughs> or that commercial for Chrysler where Tiger Woods rolled down the window and said the line. You're like, wow. Like, it's still watching ha- golf, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It still has that kind of cultural relevancy. Yeah. Um, but like I said, you're working a ton. You're also uh, in The Devil Has a Name, which is That's directed right. by Edward James Olmos, who's along. He's been acting for so long himself. Oh yeah, he's right? a legend. Yeah. Do you think about directing? Like you, like you. It's it's one of those lines, right? Like it's like you didn't just come to acting; you were born of it. This is <laughs> well, like what you've done. I feel like a, like a, a responsibility to put all the experience I've had in this industry and been really fortunate to have uh, to good use like that. And watching someone like uh, like Eddie direct a film is inspiring in that way. Like it's a challenge to he's he's also a character in the movie to be acting in a film and directing it and doing all that. And uh, I really would like to take a crack at that. So, so you 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 feel ready for that? Yeah, you feel I, like I you... went to school here in New York at a, uh, NYU. I studied experimental theater and uh, wrote and directed a play my last year there. So like I've had a little bit of experience with it, but definitely want to do it. You're ready, yeah. man. I like I like that very much. <laughs> I also like how you just very casually Eddie yeah. Knight <laughs> Bruce. You know the boys. I you like how, how that's uh, another another long career though that you've had is in. I, and I want to get this right because people get mad. You're voicing Sora. That's right. In the Kingdom of Hearts. Kingdom of Hearts. Hearts. Sorry. Uh Oh. Yeah. yeah. See, I already got in trouble. Um, (laughs) What What is that like? You've been doing it since you were 14. Yeah. It's been probably. I think that would be the longest project I've ever uh, worked on. You know, we've done multiple. uh, interstitial installments uh, since Kingdom Hearts 2, which was 2006, I think. And this is the big one. This is the big one. And so uh, 3 yeah, is coming. Three. Can you look directly into camera? And can you actually promise? Because fans have been waiting for this for a long time. Don't can worry. You... I was at Game... I drove by GameStop this morning. I saw the poster up. It's coming out this month. Yeah. All right. Jan- January something. January 29th, yeah. I believe. <laughs> I got, 29th, I got yeah. you on that. Well, man, thank you so much. Really nice I really hope you, we get to see you in the director's chair soon. Thanks so much. Future yeah. Man Season 2 is streaming now on Hulu. You can watch it all in one go. And up now... Next, we're talking about the internet's favorite headlines. I'm Chantal Rochelle, and we're about to get into what's poppin'. Over the weekend, the gossip site Bossup tweeted this headline about rumors surrounding Jeff Bezos' divorce. Amazon Prime piping. Jeff Bezos allegedly smashed friend's wife to same-day smithereens. And last week, Bossa tweeted this headline about one of our favorite comedians. Hi, Steve. Bespectacled, custard-colored cat daddy, Steve Carell is drenching Twitter draws with his glow-up. <laughs> Jolly and Alex Ford, both associate editors from Bossa, join me now to tell us how they come up with these hilarious headlines that have become a staple of black Twitter. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. How are you? I mean, let's get right into it. How did these crazy headlines become a staple for Bossup? Go ahead, man. Well, I mean, I think from the beginning, Bossup has always had a certain type of language, a certain type of way that we communicate with our readers. And that started from the very beginning um, for, with our boss, Mar Frazier, when she first started the site. And I feel like with the editorial team now, we kind of took that 
platform that she kind of laid out and pushed it as far as we could go with jokes and pop culture references and everything in between. Everybody crazy, man. <laughs> I mean, we, to get this job, we all had to take a test yeah, and pretty much have a certain voice naturally. Wow. It just had to Wow, so, so you, you had an audition you, process. You got to take a test, yes. And Marv, you know. That is something like, else. That's hilarious. Like, yeah. So why do you think they become such a force in Black Twitter? Everyone's so obsessed with the headlines. Um, I think we try to make them timely. And I think we try to add stuff that is probably a lot more colorful language that's a lot more colorful than some other sites would use toward the same type of content. I mean, ultimately, a lot of us in this media industry are... are picking stories from the same type of content, but how are you going to talk about them? Are you going to talk about them in ways that your friends can relate to that in the same way that you would talk about them, you know, in a barbershop or in a beauty salon or on your group chat? Yeah, that's, we just do what we want pretty much. Yeah. Then we have limits and we have, we can't say certain things, but we do what we want. I think people live through us. Like they go to work and they can say whatever they want. Greatest job of all and time. And so 300,000, however many people at one time, I want to do that. So a lot of people that work in serious news organizations, you know, hit us up like, man, I wish I could do that, but I'm doing, I'm covering, you know. I have to be City serious council about media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to be serious about their news, whereas we can have a little bit more fun with ours. Yes, live through us. <laughs> We're just, you know, we just do what we want. We have a certain voice. We have, uh, everyone who works here knows what's expected as far as just being outrageous or being over the top or being outlandish. And we just don't try to be cliche. Well, I love that you can speak yourself authentically. And you said you mentioned you have an audition process. So how do you know when you've written a good one, when you put that sauce on it? <laughs> it just feels right. I guess the only thing you can compare it to is like, you know, if a, if a if a singer goes to sing a great song and they know they nailed it or a rapper goes to write a verse and they know that this is the verse, you just feel it. You know yeah. that, you know, especially since we've been doing this for so long, we know what our readers want. Yeah. So when we write something, it's we can tell which part is going to stand out. We know what everyone is going to get a laugh at, what part they're going to retweet. And it's just, it's kind of become second nature to us now. Yes, I'm, I'm like this. I'm like, <laughs> damn. You, just, you, you know, you just know. You know it can't be, people have expectations for certain stories, so you know it can't be cliche. Sometimes we might look and see what other people are doing. And just, we already going to put our own spin on it. You just know when it hits. You just know. Yeah, the chef doesn't have to taste the food to know that it's good. Okay. Bam. Mm-hmm. In my mind, you guys are behind the desk, like the Jim Carrey meme. You guys are just at it. Y'all are behind the scenes just getting it. So when I'm scrolling through Twitter, it's so hard to miss a boss of headline. I mean, custard color cat daddy, the brilliant. So tell me, what are your favorite headlines that you guys have written? Um, We've written like thousands. There's a lot of them. I mean, uh, I think uh, ostrich. Yeah, I think I think think, yeah, I think my favorite one was the uh, was a Taylor Swift headline Mm. uh, that I wrote after she covered the Earth, Wind, and Fire song that September that set everybody um, set every set everybody's timeline ablaze. I believe what I said was uh, caucasity audacity, soft boiled ostrich egg. Taylor Swift gets burned, buried, and blown away for covering Earth, Wind, and Fire. Your rap voice, bars. Yeah, bars. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how I feel. I feel like I spit bars every time I write one of these things. Yeah, you know, Saltine Fury, the, the Jeff Bezos was uh, three three of us put out some of the. I mean, we. I wish we could show y'all we had, we had <laughs> options. To how we could cover that, uh, we hey, had a whole. We're all ears over here. You guys are riding the hottest sixteens of the moment right now. And over the weekend, Boss have tweeted, "Boss of fam, if you're dying to know who wrote your favorite headline, hashtag your retweet with hashtag who writes these, and maybe we'll reveal the comedic geniuses behind our work." Now, tell me, why do you think people want to know the identity of the Boss of headliners so much? Well, for a long time, I mean, the idea of Bossip that we all speak in one voice, but for a long time, people didn't know that there was a staff, if there was a staff, if this right. was one person, two people, are these headlines being written as a group, or is, are, there, are there six or seven people who come up with this kind of stuff? So we kind of wanted to let people know who we are a little bit, you know, peel the curtain 
turned back just a tad and yeah. kind of let them get to know us as individuals. Yeah, we real life people, man. We went to school. We like award winning journalists on the staff, like serious writers, people who work for serious things. But we just kind of adapted and learn how to write a different way. Mm-hmm. So good. Well, John, Alice, keep on doing the Lord's work. Keep on blessing our timeline. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> you guys, shout everybody out. Shout out to the staff. Yes, shout out to all the ladies of Boston, all um, the ladies who run things at Boston to keep us in order, to keep us in line, and, and, and you know, present this content for y'all. Interactive one, BuzzFeed, appreciate y'all for having us. You know, we can have, we could come to the BuzzFeed office right. and write y'all headlines one day. Like, it's, it's possible. I mean, we, yeah. if you want us to come there and anybody fire y'all headlines, anybody who wants hey, a little help in here, come on over. And we want to hear from you, Twitter. All right, y'all, what is your favorite boss of headline? Tweet it to us using the hashtag AM to DM. Up next, Isaac and Stephanie are reading your tweets. Welcome back. I love those Made guys. I, I love the idea of like a boss at BuzzFeed collab. I know. I wish they were able to come in the studio. I'm not really sure where they're based, but I'd love for I'd love for them to come on and just like shoot the shit with Or us. do like a Mad Lib style, create your own boss up headline. But anyways, yeah. we asked you all, what is your most liked Instagram picture? Our very own Dan Bowser says, this is my most liked Instagram picture and I'm not mad about it. Oh yeah. That is Dan, our sound guy. He got married yeah, recently. Yeah, he just got married. Yeah, I, I will say to my previous point, I think my, probably my top Instagram photo ever is most likely a wedding photo. Is most likely. I don't know for sure. All right, I've got that to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go, there you go. And Joe Lee added, this one in my post-gig makeup at 238 likes. Woo, that's a lot. There's a cute story in the caption. That's a Beautiful photo. Yeah, I love it. That's I love awesome. that look. And this, uh, what's fun is when we get to see the audience. You know, I like, know. That's what I love about. This. I know you guys get to see us all the time. Like we want to see you guys. Send us your pics, especially it, cute babies, cute whatever <laughs> wedding pics. Love a wedding. Pic. Any pets? Uh, Rachel Hey Girlfield tweeted, "I can't get over that Haley Joel Osmond is six years younger than me. I always thought he was so much younger than me." Yeah, no, he is a grown man, and he is putting in work, like I was saying. Yeah, we just touched on a few of the projects that he's doing. I am so excited for the Ted Bundy movie. I really hope it's not one of those movies where it comes out at Sundance and everyone's like, it sucked. Like, I really want it to be good. And, like, Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory is in it, too. What? Yeah, he's, like, the lead prosecutor. It's like It's, like, a very interesting cast, and it could be, like, so good. I'm just, like... Please, please, please. I just love how much you love murderers. I love murderers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. On that note, well, thank you to our guests, Rebecca Klein, Ernest Owens, Paul McLeod, Gabby Dunn, Haley Joel Osment, Chantal Rochelle, Jolly, and Alex Ford. If anybody can give just Stephanie saying I love murderers, I would really appreciate it. We will see you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a good Monday, guys.